In the name of God who creates, redeems, and sanctifies. Amen. Please sit. Last weekend, a number of us, more than a thousand actually, gathered in Hartford for a weekend full of celebrations marking the ordination and consecration of our new bishop, diocesan, now called Bishop Jeff. And as the clergy co-chair of that consecration committee, I had both the privilege and the responsibility of making sure that the entire weekend came together, <laughs> that it worked, that everything was where it was supposed to be. And there were some real pros and cons to that, and I want to tell you a little bit about it this morning. Um, like, for example, on Saturday morning, between the hours of 7.30 and noon, I walked seven and a half miles around the convention center. So it had its pros and cons. Having said that, I am really hopeful about this next chapter in the life of our church. I'm really hopeful about this next chapter with our new bishop. And so I want to tell you a little bit about the weekend so that you can understand what it was like, and a little bit about him as we do that not just because of the larger scope of hope, but also hopefully you know me well enough to know that I think this morning it's also relevant to the text. So we're going to get there. But at this particular moment in time in the Episcopal Church, a consecration is a whole thing. It's not just the two and a half hour long service that took place on Saturday, though that's a big part of it and an important part of it. And presiding Bishop Michael Curry was here for that and was the chief consecrator. And it's always exciting to see him. He was also here for the whole weekend, which began on Thursday night with the bishops all going to dinner, having a casual time together that the rest of us did not enjoy. And then Friday morning, we started very early. Our now bishop, then bishop-elect, wanted to spend part of the morning with the young adults of the diocese. So he and Michael Curry sat in a room at the cathedral with 45 young adults answering any question that they asked, having just a, a casual, friendly conversation. And what was really holy about that time, I think, is that they acknowledged for these young adults that they are not the future of the church, that they are the church now. Then there was a press conference. Then there was a lunch that all of the clergy were invited to around the diocese. Then there was a rehearsal dinner that very much looks like a wedding rehearsal. I mean, it's really, it's really quite something with the toasts and all of that. And then in the morning on Saturday, we consecrated a bishop and had a big reception after that. And then, as you know, on Sunday, there was a final liturgy at the cathedral in the morning where the bishop comes with his crozier, his bishop staff, and he, he knocks on the door. And this is a liturgy that dates back to the fourth century. And the dean chooses, hopefully, in this case did, to let the bishop in. There are some stories about times when the dean has chosen not to let the bishop in, but that did not happen on Sunday, which is a very good thing. So I tell you all this so that you understand a little bit of the scope of the weekend. It was a full and a busy weekend. And I think overall, and I'd encourage those of you who are here, um, who were there to talk with other people about it, it was a hopeful weekend. It was a hopeful weekend for the life of the church. And one of the great gifts for me actually was working with our new bishop up close for the last several months to plan all of this and to make sure that it felt like his fingerprints were all over it, right? It wasn't us running it. It was, it was his vision. And one of the things that he talked about a lot 
One of the things that I think is deep in his bones and deep in his being, and you can't miss it when you're with him, is this sense of joy in our faith. He genuinely wants to lead all of us into a deeper relationship with Jesus that will bring us joy. He believes, as you know that I do, deep in his bones that God loves all of us equally, completely, all the time, no matter what. And he was very clear about that in his sermon on Sunday morning. And he's very clear about the fact that there is joy for us to be found in that truth, even though the world feels chaotic, even though things feel messy, even though we've acknowledged from time to time that this feels like a difficult season for a whole host of reasons, both as different communities and different organizations and just individually as people. Joy is a word that he keeps continuing to come back to. The joy that we can find in our faith and the joy that we can find in each other. And so I, I want you to hear me say that I am really encouraged by this new start and encouraged by who he is and hopeful about what his first visit with us will eventually look like in the next year or so because there is a, there is a faithfulness to him that I, I am sure that you will see because we can see it in any leader, frankly, who lay or ordained continues to show up, who's willing to be vulnerable, who's willing to put themselves out there, who's willing, whether priest or deacon or bishop or layperson, to grow and stretch themselves and try again, even, even sometimes especially after they've gotten it wrong. Right? There is faithfulness in that. And I think this morning there's a particular kind of faithfulness that shows up in our gospel that is also connected to the kind of joy that the bishop is talking about. The parable that Jesus tells us this morning has quite a few different angles to it. There's really, there's like eight sermons in that tiny little paragraph. There's a lot that we could do with it. But this morning I wanna head just in that direction of faithfulness, of what it means to show up, and of what it means to show up well. So a quick refresher. I know it wasn't that long ago that we heard the story of St. Matthew, but the caricature of tax collectors is really important this morning. So just a quick reminder that tax collectors, the stereotype of them was that they were corrupt. They were traitors. They took the money from their people and gave it to the emperor. And the accusation usually was that they were filling their own pockets at the same time. They were taking more from their people than they probably had to and living off of that wealth themselves. So the idea that the tax collector would be the good-looking person in this story would have been pretty offensive to just about everyone, especially the Pharisee. And Pharisees, for their part, have a very interesting place in Scripture. And I think with stories like this, it's really easy for us to look back and sort of vilify them. It's really easy for us to create a, a stereotype of the Pharisee. But the truth is, that group of people probably had more in common with Jesus than any other population on the planet at the time. They shared similar goals, similar visions, similar heritage and kinship and history, a similar understanding of God's vision. And I think if you ask the Pharisees, they would say that their work was about living faithful lives and encouraging, if not enforcing, the fact that other people should be living faithful lives as well. 
But even as they'd say that, I think what we see in Scripture and Jesus' criticism of them as a group consistently is that even though they get 97% of it right, that 3% that's wrong is really, really important. And it has something, I think, to do with what it means to live well, with what it means to live faithfully. Even though they seem to check all the boxes, even though they seem to follow all the rules, there is that ineffable joy, we call it in the church, that they just seem to be missing. Instead of living sort of joyfully and walking humbly with God and neighbor, they seem to be happier living with this kind of arrogance and pettiness and fear, maybe even just frustration. Maybe it's just a little bit of bitterness because they feel like they're doing all the right things and nobody else is. And all of that, by the way, should remind you of someone. In fact, it should remind us all of many someones because it should remind you of us, of all of us, of what it is to be human. In fact, I have a colleague this morning, and I am not doing this, just for the record, but I have a colleague this morning who has rewritten the parable, who's preaching to her congregation a story about good Episcopalians instead of good Pharisees. (laughs) The point being, of course, that the text is already making the point it's not our job to judge, right? There's judgment all over this text. And that all of us, we too perhaps especially as Episcopalians, we think we have a fair amount of it figured out. And yet we are still human and still fallible at the end of the day. So what's always interesting and perhaps most important about the gospel for us is what Jesus actually says. And today it's right at the end of the passage. At the beginning, we get actually a little narration from Luke. Luke's trying to tell you to. He's trying to judge what the story's about before you even get to the story. But once you get to the end of the story, we have this sentence from Jesus. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. So this man, of course, who goes down to his home justified is the tax collector, the one who's assumed to be the sinner, the dregs of society. This is the one who goes home justified, while the Pharisee, the upright, the faithful person, the one who follows all the rules, seemingly, does not. And I think for Jesus, when we read that, it appears to hang on humility, right? On the posture of these two men, on their approach. All who exalt themselves will be humbled. Okay, so that doesn't sound so great, right? But the flip side of that is kind of nice that all who humble themselves will be exalted. So let's look at the difference between these two men, because I know there's an obvious difference, but then I think, I think it's a little deeper. Both the Pharisee and the tax collector show up. Both of them go to the synagogue. Both of them want to pray. Both of them recognize who God is. Both of them get all of that right. The difference is in how they do it, in how they show up. And as I sat with this text this week, there were two things in particular, and they're deeply related. They're almost one thing, truthfully, but I'm, gonna, I'm just going to break them up for the sake of accessibility. And the, and the first thing is, and I'm not entirely sure what to call it, honestly, I kind of labored over this all week, but I'm, I'm going to go with heart. 
There is something different about this tax collector's heart, about his very being. And I think you can see it if you actually try to imagine the scene. You can see their different postures. You can see the difference in where they go in the temple, right? One has privilege and he thinks he can go sort of be in the center of things, right? And the other wants very much to be on the side, to not be heard, to have private prayer. You can hear it in their voices. We all, from our own life, we know what humility looks like when we see it. We know what gratitude looks like when we see it. We also know what arrogance and severity look like when we see it, particularly when we experience it. And so maybe it comes from his position in life, from some kind of insecurity around what he does. But whatever it is, there's clarity for the tax collector, clarity that makes him a human being who is willing to be humble. He can see his shortcomings and his failings. And I think what's, what's even more than that is that in the text, it's not even just that he can see it. He's willing to name it. He's willing to stand before God and name it, to confess his shortcomings to God. Unlike the Pharisee, he doesn't entangle anyone else, right? He's not standing there comparing himself to anyone else. He's practicing self-focus, which is a really good and healthy thing to do. And there's something compelling, I think, about that image. It's, you know, we talk about it sometimes like wearing your heart on your sleeve, but I almost think it's more like he's kind of standing there offering his heart, offering himself up to God in a completely vulnerable way. And to be clear, the vulnerability between the two of them is no different. The Pharisee needs God just as much as the tax collector. He just doesn't know it. Either that or he's just not willing to admit it. And I'm not sure which is worse, truthfully. There's no posturing. There's no pretense in this man. He just stands there, humble, aware of his need for God, and offers himself up. So that's the first thing. And the, and the second thing, as you'll see, I think is deeply related. And it's this sense of knowing his role, knowing his relationship with God, knowing his place with God, understanding that we are dependent on God. And not only can you see that in what he says, I think it's, it's, even, to, it's even sort of really strongly marked out by the difference in what the Pharisee says. The Pharisee just thinks he's holy. He thinks he's justified. He thinks he's righteous. He thinks he's done all the things he needs to do. He doesn't think he needs God. His confidence, his security, his sense of self doesn't come from God. It comes from something he's done. It comes from his own sense of control. And in, to a certain extent, and Jesus has a lot to say about this elsewhere, it comes from his judgment of others. In general, when you're thinking about your own prayer life, one thing you don't want to do is start by comparing yourself to other people. I thank you that I'm not like these people. That's, I mean, it may have been a little rhetoric from Jesus to kind of wake us up and get us to pay attention, but not a great prayer tactic, really. And so I wonder, among the many things that this parable might have to say to us, I wonder this morning, as a church, both here in this place, as part of a larger church, Christians in the world who are on a journey, 
who are struggling to live our faith well. I wonder what we can learn from these two people about faithfulness. And I think that showing up and how we show up is part of it. That our posture and our sense of direction, whether we are counting on ourselves or counting on God, has a lot to do with it. I think that has something to do with whether we're willing to accept our place in the world, our relationship with God and with each other. And I think it comes down to whether or not we are willing to name the fact that we need God to make us whole. I think what we see in the tax collector, despite his shortcomings, which we all share, despite his brokenness, which we all have as human beings, his willingness to be honest and vulnerable and humble, his lack of a desire to be front and center, to be in the middle of everything, to be seen, to be given credit for who he is and what he does. There's something incredibly humble and honest and open and faithful about offering himself up in that way, the way that he offers himself to God. And I think it's the way that we are invited to offer ourselves to Jesus over and over and over again. Now the truth is, there's a little bit of Pharisee and a little bit of tax collector in all of us. Some more than the other, probably in certain moments and certain seasons. None of us, none of us, not even our new bishop, were he here, would say that he is able to hold that posture of trust and joy and vulnerability all the time. But that is the journey. It's to sort of every day get up and try again, to hand ourselves over to God, to learn to trust more in God than in ourselves, and to find that even in the midst of whatever it is that ails us or plagues us on a particular day or in a particular season, that we can still find our joy in the promise of the gospel and the promise that light always shines in the darkness and life always conquers death and that these sadnesses and sorrows and challenges and frustrations, whatever they are, are only temporary and God will always have the last say. There is, and I, I hope that there is for you, there is tremendous joy in being able to hand yourself over to that truth and to let go of some of these other things. So I wonder this week if you will be mindful, almost like, like in the movies or in the cartoons, you know, you see the little devil and the little angel on your shoulders. I wonder if you'll be mindful of the tax collector and the Pharisee. Maybe not on your shoulders, but... Maybe the way that they battle a little bit over your heart. None of us can exercise the Pharisee overnight, and that's okay. We don't have to. The promise is that God sees us fully and loves us completely. And part of learning to trust that is also, like the tax collector, being able with clear eyes to acknowledge that we are still a little bit Pharisee and a little bit broken. And then knowing that God will still show up and God's promises will still hold true for us anyway. So I wonder if this week you will think about those two characters and about how you show up in the world, in this place, in your relationships, about your posture, about your willingness to pray, 
about your willingness to receive mercy. I believe, and I know that our new bishop believes, that there is joy in the fact that God sees you completely and loves you completely. And there is no need for posture or pretense. We only need to learn how to trust that we are loved, even as we are fully seen completely for all of the ways that we are broken and fall short. And I think only when we do that and accept the sort of humble posture of the tax collector in this story can we really yield to the joy that Jesus intends for us. Amen.